Hi, I'm Morgan Block, and you're listening to Climate Curiosities, the podcast where I connect you with real climate science and policy experts to address some of the most common curiosities about climate change. On today's episode, we'll be discussing a curious and really cool topic, ice. Luckily, today, climate scientist Margaret Lindemann is here to break down what we need to know about ice. Margaret is a fourth-year PhD candidate at Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego. She studies physical oceanography with a focus on ice-ocean interactions. Her research concentrates on studying the role of the oceans in driving ice loss in Greenland and the impact of melting ice on our oceans. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Margaret. Before we slide right into the ice science, I always like to start out the show with letting the audience get to know us better. What we're going to do is share two fun curiosities about ourselves. So I'll start off. I love watching nature documentaries. But I'm that really crazy person who always roots for the predator. So whenever I see polar bears hunting baby seals, I really hope they eat them. <laughs> <Which> is, <laughs> I don't know if that makes me horrible, but I just want the predators to have some food too. <laughs> polar bears got to eat. And then this fun curiosity isn't directly about me, but it's really cool. One of my best friends from college, she's now getting her PhD, and she went on a science cruise to Antarctica in January and February. And I'm so obsessed with all of her pictures and posts about her trip. And so subsequently, I've been really interested in learning more about ocean and ice interactions lately. So I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Awesome. I'm so glad to be here. So A fun curiosity about me is that I really love watching the same movies over and over. I have probably seen the movie Clueless about 500 times, and it's a nightmare to watch it with me because I just want to quote every line. And the other thing is, while I've been uh, staying at home more, I've been reading a lot more than I have been, so novels and other sort of fun books. And then one that I just read, the, the main character, who's not a scientist, is talking about climate change. And she says she realizes that people are really sick of being lectured to about the glaciers. So I read that and felt slightly horrified and then thought, well, I'm really glad (laughs) we're having a conversation about them and I won't be lecturing today. So I'm really glad that uh, you were willing to have me on and that we can talk about this. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. That sounds like a really interesting book. What is it? It's called Weather by Jenny Offal. It's about a librarian who gets really into climate change and the end of the world. (laughs) Oh, cool. I'll have to put it on my list. (laughs) Definitely. So I would really love to spend some time discussing your research with you and why you think ocean ice science is important and what you are learning about. Yeah. So I guess I I wanted to start by explaining what an ice sheet is. So when snow falls on land uh, over many, many years and it doesn't get cold enough to to melt in the summer, it just piles up. And over time, it starts to compact into ice. Uh, In Greenland and Antarctica, there's so much ice built up that as it compacts into ice, it starts to spread out and flows away towards the edges of the landmass. Then when it gets there, it starts to melt or break off. And I study the ocean in those 
areas where the land ice is kind of uh, coming into contact with the ocean and how much it's melting and what different types of processes are happening there. You explain an ice sheet. Can you explain a little bit about the difference between ice sheets and glaciers and sea ice? There's so many like different kinds of ice um, and it gets kind of confusing. Yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of ice that occur naturally on Earth. So ice sheets, like I just said, they form on land. Uh, And the difference with sea ice is that it is actually formed from ocean water freezing. So sea ice tends to be pretty thin, up to a few meters, maybe six or 10 feet. But land ice that forms from the snow compacting can be over a mile or even two miles thick. So in some places in Antarctica, you have ice taller than mountains. So it's a completely different type of ice from the stuff that you get floating on the ocean. And the ice that forms on land, if you have Antarctica, which is bigger than the entire U.S., or Greenland, which is about the same size as Mexico, and then you cover it with a mile thick on average of ice. It's just a ton of water that's being held on land instead of in the ocean. So if that ice does melt and ends up back in the ocean, that's how you start to get sea level rise in that. That's why this land ice in particular is really important to study for those of us who are interested in the impacts of climate change. Yeah, that sounds reasonable, right? So then when sea ice melts, does that add to sea level rise? So that's a great question. And when sea ice melts, it doesn't add to sea level rise. And the reason is it's just like if you had an ice cube in a glass of water. After you put the ice cube in, even if it melts, the the water level in the glass doesn't change. But it can matter for other parts of the climate system. You have some ocean that's covered in sea ice and there's no way to get in and out of the ocean and be exchanged with the atmosphere. When you melt that ice away, suddenly you have ocean that's exposed to the atmosphere. There's all kinds of different interactions that start to be able to happen as a result of losing that sea ice. So we hear a lot about glaciers and sea ice melting and polar bears dying. So how is climate change really linked with glacier melt and why should we care about it? Yeah. So like I said, the way that ice sheets work when they're in balance, we like to call it, they're always adding more snow in the middle and losing more ice at the edges. But as long as those two things are happening at the same, more or less the same rate, the ice sheet stays the same size. And that's what we call it being in balance. So climate change can cause the ice sheet to come out of balance and change size by affecting any part of that, any side of that balance. So it could be that you are adding less snow. It could be that you're melting more ice off of the surface, or it could be that the ocean is warming and melting more ice at the edges. So there's sort of a lot of different entry points for climate change to throw off the balance of these ice sheets. And that, as I said before, it will cause sea level to rise anytime the ice sheet is shrinking. All of that water is ending up in the ocean and causing sea level to rise. That's crazy. So how much sea level rise would happen with these ice sheets melting? That's exactly the question that that we're trying to answer with the research that we do at Scripps and at other places. We know how much the sea level would rise if the entire ice sheet melted. So in Greenland, it's about seven meters and in Antarctica, it's 60 meters. So that's over 150 feet. But that would be if the entire ice sheet melted. And so what we're really interested in is understanding how much of the ice sheet is vulnerable and how fast that change is going to happen. Those are both the really important questions for our research. 
So how big are Antarctica and Greenland? And I feel like we hear about these places, but it's really hard to picture their massive size. Yeah, so Greenland is bigger than Mexico and Antarctica is 50% bigger than the U.S. in terms of area. That's the entire U.S. counting Alaska, which adds uh, quite a bit of <laughs> quite a bit of extra area. So they're really huge areas covered with really, really thick ice. It's a really massive amount of water that's being stored on land for us in those areas. Wow. And one question that I have is, can you talk about what climate feedbacks are and some specific feedbacks that are associated with ice sheets? Yeah, this is a great question. So feedbacks happen in any kind of system like the climate system where there are a lot of different interconnected processes. And so any one change can trigger a change in something else, and that can make the first change bigger. Um, And so we call that a feedback, this sort of amplification or enhancing or potentially dampening of one change uh, through the links of a system. And so one example of what this can look like with an ice sheet is that if the air is warming, more ice tends to melt. And if you've ever been outside on a snowy day, you know that ice and snow can be really reflective. You might go back in to get your sunglasses. But once you start to melt that ice on the surface, you get liquid water that's a bit darker and absorbs more of the light. So as the sun is shining on these melt ponds, it absorbs more of the sunlight. It starts to warm up more and you sort of get this amplifying feedback where there's more melt happening because of the addition of this liquid water at the surface. So even a small change in the time temperature is sort of enhanced by the other change in the reflection of the ice as it melts. That is really interesting because you think of ice and automatically go to the ocean and sea level rise. But I guess just the reflectivity of it is a really important aspect as well for climate change and how much the globe will warm up. It's definitely a big part of it. And it's it's part of why the poles tend to be more vulnerable to climate change than other parts of the planet. So even if the planet warms up by one or two degrees on average, that usually means that the tropics are warming up by a little bit less and the poles are warming up by even more. So the types of feedbacks that happen in the high latitudes make a really big difference for how climate change sort of distributes its effects. Margaret, can you explain how do the Greenland or Antarctic ice sheets actually affect people here in America or people in Europe or just people that are not living right next to these ice sheets? Yeah, it's a super important question because everybody's sad about the polar bears when they can't eat, as you mentioned before. But also really important for us to think about what this means for for us and for other societies. And the most obvious link between what's happening in in the poles and our daily lives, especially here in San Diego, is sea level rise. There's so many people worldwide, including in the U.S., who live close to coasts, uh, which are going to be vulnerable to sea level rise. And these ice sheets are the going forward going to be the biggest contributor to that. So really understanding how much and how fast sea level is going to rise is going to be really critical. But for people that don't live on the coasts, maybe that's not quite enough. (laughs) And the other thing that doesn't get talked about as much is that the way that the ocean on a very large scale moves heat around is driven by ocean currents. And a big thing that drives ocean currents is differences in how warm and salty different water masses are. And so 
as you add a bunch of fresh water to the to the ocean from the melting ice, you're going to change how some of those currents and the ocean circulation works on a larger scale. And that's really hard to, to predict how big of an effect that's going to be or what exactly it's going to look like. But that's the type of thing that can change weather patterns worldwide, um, even though it's driven by stuff happening way up in the poles. So it's really important to remember how interconnected that climate system is and that there can be feedbacks um, or connections that surprise us and have effects that we're not expecting. Yeah. I think one news report a while back that I heard was that like the jet stream is connected to the ice up in the North Pole area. Is that something that you have studied or looked at before? That's a, it's a pretty open area of research, I think, but it's certainly something that people are talking about right now because it's a great example of the type of connections that people are looking at to understand how weather patterns might change as a result of some of this. Yeah, definitely. I know Florida and Miami have been already seeing sea level rise issues. Does that have a direct link to ice sheet melting and glaciers melting, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. So we we know that sea level has already been rising and it's a combination of factors that cause it. And all of them are linked certainly to climate change. But the ice sheets have been about a third of that melt. So about a third of the sea level rise, sorry, that they're seeing in Florida and everywhere else would be linked to ice sheets. And going forward, that proportion is most certainly going to increase. One more question about sea level rise. Where is our baseline? When are we, when you say like, oh, we're melting you know, more now, what are we looking at compared to? That's a great question. And for ice sheets, on, on some level, it's a bit hard to answer that question because they're so huge and they're very difficult to observe. And so it's only in the last 40 or 50 years that we have uh, satellite measurements to compare to and try to sort of construct a baseline from. So there's some uncertainty in that certainly, but we also have paleoclimate records going back hundreds of thousands of years that sort of show us that we've had a relatively constant amount of ice, land ice on earth for thousands of years. And all of a sudden we're moving in this direction where we're seeing a lot of it being lost. So we can combine a lot of those different sort of lines of evidence to say that what we're seeing now is certainly not something that's familiar from the last few millennia of human history. Right. Yeah, definitely. And so for all of the listeners that are really on here to know what can we do and how can we help ice sheets and Antarctica and Greenland, they just seem so far away from us as individuals. And it kind of feels like we can't do anything to help. But do you have a suggestion? What what can we do to make a positive impact? This is the single most important question, probably. And I usually when people ask me this, I say, well, don't ask a climate scientist this because <laughs> we're telling you what's happening and we're not the ones who can tell you how to fix it. But all humans need to care about this. We all need to be part of it. And so my two cents are that, first of all, you should think about why you care about climate change. If thinking about polar bears, thinking about Greenland is not, it just feels too far away for you, then think about something else. Think about the effects that you expect climate change to have on you or your kids or somebody that you love now or in the future. And then the most important thing I think you can do is keep this in mind every time you vote, every time you're choosing a candidate, make sure that they know that this is a priority, both on the national and the local level and everywhere in between. And the other thing is just to talk about it. I always recommend Catherine Hayhoe as a, she's a, a writer and a, a speaker. 
I love her. She's amazing. (laughs) And she always says like a very high percentage of people in the US and probably worldwide will say in a poll that climate change is important to them, but none of them are talking to their neighbors about it. The more that we normalize having conversations about caring about climate, the further we're going to get with all of these other strategies. Definitely. Yeah. And that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to start this podcast is to give people a means of learning more about climate science and climate change in a very non-confrontational science-based way and give them some of the tools to have these discussions with their family and friends in a really respectful way, in a way that's showing that we care and we want to make the world a better place and not being really hateful or shunning people based on what they don't know or maybe they don't understand fully. I completely agree that it's so important that we strike a respectful tone and uh, realize that every you know everybody's concerned about the future of the planet in the sense that they're concerned about their future uh, kids and grandkids and whatever. And so if we can all just accept that we have some shared common values, I think it's a much better groundwork for uh, a real conversation about how to move forward. Definitely. So just finishing up our podcast, I have one fun question that I would like to ask you before we go into our last segment. How many times have you seen an ice sheet or have you been to, have you been to Greenland? I have. I've been to Greenland three times, two times in the summer and once in the winter, which was a pretty wild experience. Oh, wow. (laughs) And so you actually got to witness some of the in-person research that you've been doing at Scripps. Yeah, it's been a really amazing part of doing this research is getting to go to the field and uh, really like the ice sheets aren't that far away from me and seeing how how massive and impressive they are. Yeah. And, And I know that you've mentioned this before, but for a lot of our listeners that don't don't know this or maybe they forget, are there people that live near these ice sheets? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Great question. (laughs) So uh, yeah, Greenland has about 65,000 people living there. There's a a large population of native uh, Greenlandic people who are living alongside these things and have been learning what it's like to watch them change for many centuries already. Yeah. So even though maybe it's far away from us, it definitely is closer and impacting some populations a lot more directly than even what we're seeing. Yeah. And that is such an important point. I'm so glad that you brought that up to remember that those people deserve our consideration as well and that they're getting, they're impacted a lot by whatever decisions we make here. Yeah. So just to finish up, I like to have a segment at the end of my show where we take kind of the big curiosity for this session and model an example conversation for our listeners. That way, if they get asked by a family or friend or a coworker question about ice or ice sheets, then they can have a response to tell them. So if I was asked, how are glaciers in Greenland or Antarctica going to affect me? Or they're so far away, does it really matter if they melt? What could I say? I, if I would start with a, a conversation in San Diego, I would say, look at the ocean and look at the houses next to the ocean and think how you would feel if those houses were gone or if that beautiful beach was gone, those cliffs were gone in another 50 years. If you're talking to somebody 
farther away from the coast, I would say everything is connected and losing a mile thick ice the size of Mexico is certainly going to change things that you can't even imagine right now. So if you're thinking about the way that your life has been and you want your children's life to be something like that, then uh, you should you should care. <laughs> and if our listeners would like to have more information on ICE, what's a good resource for them to look at for some scientific based information on this? One thing I would say is there's a documentary called Chasing Ice that came out uh, about five or so years ago that I saw as an undergrad and was really impactful for me just in getting a really beautiful and interesting science-based visual for what it looks like when these things change. Um, So that's one starting place that you could try. Yeah, I think I've actually seen that as well. I saw it and I took an undergraduate course called Global Climate Change and we watched that in the course and it was really impactful. So that's a really good suggestion. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Well, Margaret, thank you so much for coming on the Climate Curiosities podcast show. We've learned so much about ice and oceans and all the interconnections between climate change and people with you. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Morgan. If you would like more information about the topics covered in this episode, please see the description for references. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember, follow and subscribe to Climate Curiosities. I hope you have enjoyed Season 1 of the Climate Curiosities podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank all of the guest experts who made this possible, as well as my amazing capstone committee at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I'm excited to share with everyone that I have officially graduated from Scripps with my master's degree in climate science and policy. But don't worry, I will be continuing with a season two. So make sure and hit that subscribe button and get ready for more climate curiosities. See you next time. (laughs) 